Parnasu. This afternoon we return to the shamatha without a sign or awareness of awareness, into the first phase, which is quite simply just coming into the experience of awareness. But as Padmasambhava teaches the settling the mind, excuse me, but it's settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state, in this sequence, in this context, he goes right to just that settling the mind, but in the following way. So I'm going to front load a little bit, so I'll speak very little during the meditation itself. And that is subtle body and respiration is normal. But then when you're settling the mind, have that sense again of releasing all thoughts, future and past, resting right in the present moment. But rather than attending to sensations in the body or sensations anywhere else, it's really, again, I'm going to come back to this analogy because it's quite strong, of rebooting your computer or restarting, and just shut the whole system down, but not in the sense of losing consciousness or just falling into dullness, which is very easy. That's one kind of shutting down. But here, the shutting down, and as you know, when you re reboot the computer, you didn't completely turn it off. The electricity was never, sh was never terminated, right? It's really on all the time, but all the system shut down. It just goes down to zero, but the electricity current is still there, right? So that's, that's, the, uh, kind of, that's where the parallel is. And that is, as you're just evenly resting your awareness in space, evenly there with no object at all, just linger there for a moment with clarity, but with no target, not internal, not external, not awareness of awareness, not trying to focus anywhere at all, utterly releasing all trying, and is also not equally interested in all the phenomena arising, literally with no object, with no deliberate focus of attention on anything. No object, no appearance, not objective, not subjective, just in the present, simple, mindful, but no object. So you've, you've just, in that moment, the screen has gone dark in a manner of speaking, like the rebooting, in the sense that you're really not attending to anything. And you linger there for a while. And then you, it's, Again, this, this verb just jumps to the lips. It dawns on you. And that's a strong, good, good strong verb, like the sun rising over the hills. It dawns on you that even when you're not attending to anything, you haven't stopped knowing something. And the knowing that's left, as you've peeled off all the layers of knowing this, that, and the other thing, is just the knowing of knowing. That's what's left. So this sequence that we've been following of the three modes of shamatha are just going 180 degrees around, that is direct opposite, of our natural tendency, especially in this modern world, but generally. And that is when we're engaging actively with the world, our tension tends to be all focusing outwards. There are the eyes, okay, and I don't see, when I'm just looking around, I don't see much of my body. I mean, it's kind of way down there. Okay, who's going to make me happy? Who's making me unhappy? And then listening, and then smelling. Oh, that smells good. That smells bad. And we go to the kitchen to the cafeteria. Ah, that looks. That tastes good. Oh, that tastes bad. And oh, this feels nice. Oh, that's that's got a nice texture. I think I'll buy that. That feels really good. You know. But that, that's synthetic. What is that? Crap. I don't want that. And so it's all looking at these objects. You know, I like. I I don't like. I hope. I fear but all focusing outwards to the point that quite a number of, I think, body therapists, Chitra could say, uh, perhaps confirm this, 
a lot of people really have very little body awareness at all. I think a lot of therapists, body therapists, yoga, yoga teachers, I'm sure must be noticing this too. Are you even aware that you're embodied? You're maybe way up in the head or somewhere above the head, but really, hello, there's a body here, you know. And so coming out, that is, as we're already so habitually coming out to all the objects that we think are going to feed our hedonic suffering or feed our hedonic pleasure, uh, one way or another, then the first step when we're just going to phase one of mindfulness of breathing is give it a rest. You know, just pull back. Come back home. Bring the, tro- bring the troops home. Back to the space of your body. And not just the surface, but come inside and see what that's like and see what's happening there. Earth, water, fire, air, breathing, all kinds of things happening. And then we come in, of course, to the nostrils. But at least we're really kind of getting really embodied and saying, ah, fancy that. I had never noticed there was so much tension here in the shoulders or the neck or tension around the eyes or the forehead or the jaws. Wow, I've been carrying that with me all along. How strange and uncomfortable. So that's kind of an eye-opener. And then in the meantime, of course, a lot of us so habitually looking at the physical senses that we hardly ever look at the mind at all. And then there are some philosophers that say you can't even look at the mind, so that gives us a great big out, well, I can't look at what I can't look at. But of course, now you know perfectly well you can look at this whole array of mental phenomena, a rather wide, wide array. So in settling the mind, we're coming in, even in from all of the five sensory fields, because we have six fields, right? We're coming in from all five of the sensory ones and focusing only on the mental one. So this is really kind of like it was inner to the body, but now it's inner, inner into the mind, but now attending to that whole domain, that circus, that 3D cinema of the mind and see, wow, this is full. And then doing it when you're having a lucid dream, it's like, wow, this is really big. Because the space of the mind, there's one real clear evidence. How big is the space of the mind? As big as your dream sta- dreamscape, right? As big as your dreamscape. That's how big your mind is. So are you dreaming of the desert? Are you thinking mountains, of the ocean, of the sky? All of that is taking place in the space of your mind. Right? And so there's a further withdrawal. So from the, from the objective environment to the body, from the body to the domain of the mind, and now here, of course, withdrawing even from the domain of the mind, not even taking an interest in the space of the mind, just coming home. Right? So in that rebooting, as we've, we just rest with no object, no deliberate attention to any of the five physical sense fields, including the somatic field of our own bodies. No interest given to the mental field. No interest given to anything objectively or subjectively. Just resting with no object at all and with no subject at all, not trying to invert. Then you see one thing's left. And to reiterate, it's like, ah, this was here all along the knowing of being conscious. And then you just rest there. So again, when you're doing this practice, some people, I think, still find it a bit elusive. Just recognize how simple it is, that it's just peeling away to a knowledge you already have right now. And before you ever learned about meditation, before, before anything else was, that already is. And that is awareness of being aware. Now, final preamble. So there we are. So, There it is, you're just resting with no object, and then so much, like the dawn rising, the sun arising from behind your back, 
it dawns on you. Oh, I am aware of something, even when I'm not attending to anything. And I can't help it. Apart from just, you know, going unconscious. As long as I'm conscious, I'm conscious of one thing most intimately. And that's the consciousness of being conscious. And so there, then you rest at that point when that dawns on you. You say, oh, this isn't complicated at all. This is not difficult at all. This is really, really, really easy, because I was already doing it. I was already aware of being aware. So just don't complicate it. Just stay right there in that awareness of being aware. And if you can just stay there, if you can just stay there, then stay there. If you can stay there in the knowing of knowing, the awareness of awareness, and not only, and this is crucial, not only be aware of being aware, but also have the confidence that you are aware of being aware. In other words, know it. Have that confidence. Do it right now, if you will. Just right now. Ten, five, ten seconds. don't need to move anything. But just, are you aware that you're conscious? Rest in that awareness. And see if you can do that and be confident of doing it while you're doing it. And that's all there is. That cognizance that you didn't just go unconscious, right? There was a cognizance there, a knowing there. And then very likely in those five or ten seconds, it's quite possible that some thought might have flickered into the mind. Some little thought, some little discursive chit-chat. Could have, yeah? Or some image could have come up. Or you might have noticed, since you probably didn't go into total immersion of the substrate consciousness in ten seconds, of other appearances arising. But just the sheer fact of any appearance arising at all is already seen as a display of awareness. So that's it. Awareness has these two qualities. It's cognizant, even if you're in the pitch dark in a sensory deprivation tank, a perfect one, still that knowing is there. But as soon as there's an appearance of anything whatsoever, a dream, a thought, an emotion, a visual impression, a sound, that also proves consciousness is there. Because consciousness is that which illuminates, makes manifest any appearance whatsoever. No consciousness, no appearances. So there it is. That's just bare-bones consciousness with no frills, no elaboration, no additions, no additives, no extra hormones, nothing. Just raw, bare, naked awareness. So if you, can re if you can just rest in that utter sense of ease, and this is why the infirmary is good just before coming into this practice, so mellow, so soft and relaxed, if you can just rest there, let's do it again, five seconds, ten seconds. You can just rest there, then just rest there, stay there. Let that glowing ember of your awareness just melt right through the snow pile, because there's nothing to do. It's allowing your awareness to descend into shamatha, or if you want to just invert the geometry, allow shamatha to rise up and meet you. In this context, though, the whole notion of achieving shamatha really doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like, what? Why that verb? You're not achieving anything, you're just sitting there. 
right? And then something happens. So it's kind of like, I mean, uh, Maria and I had a, had a conversation about this. But imagine, you know, that you're, you're, you're up here, at, you're here in, in, in Phuket at 5.30 in the morning, and you're gazing over there on the eastern horizon. And then the sun arises. Oh, I just achieved a sunrise. That's a very strange way of talking. <laughs> you achieved, you accomplished a sunrise? Achieved a sunrise? Attained a sunrise? Or experienced a sunrise? Because you didn't do anything at all. You were just sitting there, and it happened to you. So this is really the discovery. This is discovery model. This is straight. Unlike if you're focusing on a mentally generated image, like a Buddha image or image of a tomato, whatever you want to practice shamatha on, Tomatoes, budos, you know, whatever you like. But if you're not generating it, you don't achieve it. That is, if you're not generating it, you don't experience shamatha. You don't, you don't realize it. Because you've got to generate that image. You don't generate it. It's not, it's not there all by itself. Whereas awareness is there all by itself. You don't generate it. And you're not generating the stillness of awareness, and you're not generating the clarity or luminosity of awareness. Awareness can't help it. Just like salt can't stop being salty. Awareness can't stop being luminous and cognizant. It just has no choice. It goes with the territory. So to sum up, if you can just rest there in the knowing of knowing, knowing that that knowing illuminates, and being confident without vacillation, without uncertainty, without second-guessing yourself, and thinking how to try to improve it, if you can just rest there, then just rest there the whole time. If, on the other hand, you find yourself kind of getting caught up in thoughts, they kind of creep in from the back and carry you away, or after a while you're sitting there and it's kind of like, and what am I doing here? What? Like, you're not knowing anything anymore. You're just kind of sitting in there with a blank mind. So we call that laxity and dullness, and of course the other one, excitation. So if you find that you're kind of wobbling like a little child on a bike who's just learning how to bike, wobbling this way and then wobbling that way, over into distracting rumination and over into kind of get, becoming a space cadet into just spaced out, dull, then that's what the oscillation is for. Okay? Because that rather, I would almost say fierce, but strong, that strong inversion, that strong pulling away from all appearances, objective and subjective, that strong retraction into an intensity of attention right in upon the experience of being aware. Almost like you've, almost like you're developing kind of a tunnel vision. For, for example, there's Kim way over there. So I can get, glance casually at Kim and I notice she's there. But now, I really intensely, really scrutinize. Maybe I'm trying to see exactly how many hairs are dropping down behind in the back of her head. You know, how many is that on the right, on the left side? And when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at actually on her right side, how many hairs are dropping down? Everybody else has gone out of focus. When I glance this way, oh, I can see a whole bunch of people. But when I'm looking at the hairs, how many hairs are dangling there? Even her face is out of focus. That's kind of an intensity. So everything, in other words, what I've done is I've pulled back from everything else, even her face. When I'm looking at the hairs right next to the face, even then, the, the target area of focus is so small 
that if just inches, and I'm, what, 20 feet away, just a couple of inches away, looking at the hairs just coming down from her right side, her face is completely out of focus. And yet it's in the same plane, more or less, and it's just a tiny bit off target, but that's out of focus, and the hairs just to the right of her, they're in really good focus. So it's like that, that intense inversion of awareness, so everything else just goes out of focus or just fade out. And so that takes some strength. That takes some real concentration. But then only for a short time. And then you totally release. Release out into space, but space beyond appearances, just out into an expanse, while gently sustaining the flow of awareness. And so, of course, now, as you invert, you're overcoming laxity. This is, boy, is that not spaced out? When I'm looking at the individual hairs to the right of her face, boy, is that not spaced out? That's really focused, right? And so that's overcoming laxity. But when you totally release, even with no object, then of course you're releasing that energy, that turbulent energy that's underlying all the rumination, all the restlessness and agitation of the mind. You're just like sticking a, like a pen into the valve on an overinflated tire. And you just hear it go, as the excess air just flows right out. And you get more, then you get better traction. It's like that, just total release of that energy, but without just going, you know, and falling into spaciness, sustaining very delicately that flow of awareness of awareness. So use that oscillation, the, the oscillation, inversion, release, inversion, and release. Use it here in this context. I would suggest now that we're doing this third cycle. Use this to the same degree or in the same manner that you'd practice the counting in mindfulness of breathing. You pick it up, maybe you do t 10 counts. And then for 5, 10 minutes, it goes really well with no counting. And then after 10, 15 minutes, mind's starting to wander a lot. Okay, we'll bring in another 5 counts. Maybe 10, 20 counts. Okay, back to, back to shape? Good, okay, now release the counting and come right back. Because of course, overall, it's better if you're not counting, because that clutters things up. But it's better to be counting than just be ram 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 roaming around and rambling thoughts, rumination. So use this as needed as they often say in medicine bottles, use as needed, right? Use the oscillation as needed, but when you're there, when it's not needed, then don't overuse it. Then say, hey, there's nothing to correct. And it's not to say you've achieved shamator, six, eight, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever. It's not that. It's just for the time being, here's the phrase, for, time, for the time being, this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. For the time, now, it would be better later. But for the time being, I'm spot on. Let's do it just one more time, five to 10 seconds. Let's have it as good as it gets for five or 10 seconds. Yep, that's as good as it gets. Right? And it's good enough. That's good enough. That's good enough to achieve shamatha. And of course, it's not to say that it's going to remain at same, that same level, but that's allowing that burning ember, that glowing ember, to just keep on melting right, right down through the coarse, coarse levels of your mind all the way down to the substrate. That's good enough. And then what will rise up to meet you is the natural stillness and the natural luminosity of your own awareness, unencumbered, unveiled by grasping. Either the grasping under rumination or the grasping and cognitive fusion with dullness. So... Discover shamatha. And gosh, when I think about that, it's free. 
I mean, most of it, when you say discover Tahiti, discover, you know, they, well, how much does it cost? You know? Or discover this new restaurant that's just come in, that really good restaurant. Like, how much did it cost? Here, discover your substrate consciousness. And it's free? That's too good to believe, eh? Too, be, too, too good to be true. But you could be Donald Trump, you could be Carlos Slim, you could be Bill Gates. They can't buy it. <laughs> so it's a revolution of the proletariat. That's what we're dealing with here. <laughs> right next to Andreas's contemplative anarchy. <laughs> okay, contemplatives of the world unite. Let's go. As you have done before, settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm. And then, as described earlier, settle your mind, your awareness in its natural state with no object, just being mindfully present in the present with no object while sustaining mindfulness without distraction or grasping.
And then if it is dawned on you that you are indeed aware, you know that you are aware, you're confident of that, then if you can simply rest in that awareness of awareness, releasing all thoughts as soon as they arise, Letting your awareness hold its own ground, resting in its own place. Then simply be aware of being aware without further complication or additions. In this practice, insofar as your, your attention is still prone to excitation or laxity, then return to the oscillation to the extent that it's helpful until your balance is restored. And you can remain in that awareness of awareness with confidence. So experiment for yourself within your own continuum, your own experience. And let's continue practicing now in silence for the rest of the session.
lasso. It really is impossible to overemphasize the importance of looseness, relaxation, ease, especially for these latter two shamatha practices, the settling the mind and awareness of awareness. I can't recall whether in this retreat have I given the, the nice parable or analogy of the, the raven that's let, loo- let loose in mid-ocean. I don't think I have in this retreat, have I? It's worthwhile. It's cool. And this actually pertains to settling the mind, and then I'll give you the final. You already have the bashful maiden. Everybody knows that one. And that pertains to settling the mind. There's another one for settling the mind, and then there's another parable for this practice here. And they're rather cool. And they're all about a thousand years old, at least. Go back to India. So the, uh, the parable of the raven is, as the legend goes, it's probably true, uh, that in ancient times, Indian mariners, when they set out far to sea, that is way beyond sight of the coast, uh, their navigation strategies, of course, were not nearly as sophisticated as, as they were centuries later. And so when they were far out at sea and their supplies were running low, their food and water is running low, uh, then naturally they'd want to know where's the nearest land so that we can restock our supplies. But when they didn't really know where they were, how, you know, just where they were, then in anticipation of such, such a circumstance, they would bring one or more caged ravens with them out to sea. And then when they're out there and all they see in all directions is just ocean in all directions, then they would, <coughs> they would let loose one of the ravens out of its cage with the confidence that what the raven wanted was exactly what they wanted. As, as you all know, ravens don't have duck-like feet, right? And so if a raven lands in the water, it dies. It probably can't even fly out of the water. Its wings get wet, it can't paddle, and so that's one dead raven. So the raven is probably, after maybe days or even weeks, you know, trapped in this cage, really not you know, a claustrophobic raven. Finally, it's loose, and you can imagine it goes up and it's checking things out, whoops, no place for me to land, except for here, and I don't want to be here. I've been here as long as I want, in fact, much longer than I wanted. And so what that raven's going to do is, these are strong birds, and so he's going to spiral up and up and up and go as high as he can until he sees some land. And as soon as he sees some land, he's going. He no longer circles around. But it's not a stupid raven. He's not going to say, oh, what well, may be east, and then just fly off to the east. Ravens are smart birds. So he's not just going to choose any, meeny, miny, mo and then go off in that direction. You know? So he's going to do the smart thing. Go up and up and up and up until he finally sees the land. And then, no more circling. Then, like an arrow, shot. And he's free and he's one happy raven. Right? So why did the navigator do that? Of course, the navigator releases the bird and then tracks it. Tracks it, tracks it. And then if the bird takes off, okay, hard to port. You know, follow that raven. You know? Because there's only one reason the raven would actually choose to go in one direction as opposed to another. You know, it won't be boredom. And so, on the other hand, imagine the raven goes up and up and up. And there's no land in sight. No matter how high he goes, the raven just can't see any land at all. Well, ravens tend to not be prone to suicidal depression. So it won't say, oh, the hell with it. I'll just go die. And and splash, you know, one dead raven. They don't do that, you know, considering the lesser of two evils, either just die by going into the ocean or come back and alight on this doggone ship 
they will, after going around and around and around, then you'll see this very sad look on the face of the raven. Ah, crap. And then it will finally land. It has no place else to go, so it lands back on the boat from which it was released, right? Ha. Ah. Well, in a similar fashion, when you're really loose, really, really mellow, then your awareness is the navigator. And the thoughts that are let loose from your substrate, from substrate consciousness, the thoughts fly. And you don't snag them, you don't hold on to them, you don't prefer for them to go this way or that way any more than the navigator wants the, the, na the, the raven to fly north or east. No, just do, what you, do your thing but just as passively, but as intently as the navigator tracks the course of the raven and then sees it just slowly coming back down and alighting probably on the mast. So likewise, when you're just totally loose and your awareness is holding its own ground, watch the thoughts, the images, the, the videos rise in the space of the mind. And then after some time, since they have no place else to go, they can't transmigrate over to somebody else's mind. They have no place else to go. Then they come back, and they dissolve right back into the substrate. And you see them take off, and you see them come and land again. So that's a nice metaphor. And it gives that mellow quality, that mellow, but very attentive, but very restful. And it's for as long as it takes. You, know, you don't jerk it down. You don't do anything to it at all. So now we move on to the final. There are just three. And now we go to the final parable. This pertains specifically to this practice. And this one is about a duel between a swordsman, but the kind of swordsman who wields the foil, the very slender sword, like the Three Musketeers. You know, very slender, so very fast work. Not like William Wallace's broadsword, off with their heads, off three heads at once. Not like that. Just you know, skewer them. And so this is a duel between an archer and a duelist, a swordsman, but with a foil, right? But the deal here is that they're at like 50 paces. And the referee says, and we'll count off, okay, each of you now take one step closer, and one step closer, and one step closer. Which means when they're still 50 paces apart, the swordsman can't do anything at all. He has no offensive strategy, except for maybe throw the sword. It's probably a bad idea. And so he has no offensive strategy, but he's just waiting his time. And as step by step they come closer, he's getting closer to be able to do his work, right? Poke the other guy. But the meanwhile, the archer has a whole quiver of arrows. And so they're first at 50 pages. And so the archer pulls out his arrow, and he's just waiting for the swordsman to, to blink and, and releases. But the swordsman is right there, absolutely poised. But he better be loose. If he's tight, he won't be able to react quickly enough. He has to be totally loose, but absolutely in the present moment. And he's watching. The archer already has the arrow pulled back, of course. And he's watching for the first sign, the first flicker of the index finger, any, the first sign. And as soon as he sees the arrow coming, he's got his sword already there, and he just tracks the arrow coming to him, and, it fleck, and he flicks it aside, deflects it at the last moment. One, one down. Two down. And it's not going to be rhythmic. The swordsman's no fool. He's going to wait and wait 
and then send, and then another one immediately. Maybe catch him with the second one. So you never know when it's coming, but the swordsman is there, and step by step, he deflects each one until finally, if he deflects all of them in time, then he can just take out his sword and go, gotcha. It's that quality of absolutely in the moment, precise in the moment, awareness, such that as soon as a thought arises, just a tiny deflection. You're not trying to break the arrow, you're not trying to do anything to it except for just, just, just that very slight flick it away. So we can say flick it away, we can say as soon as a thought, image, any stuff comes up that's going to veil, going to kind of take your attention away from just the raw, unmediated experience of awareness, as soon as any thought arises, just, just release it immediately. So it can't even, it was like when I was trying to do something that didn't work very well. Okay, one or two people clear the throat, and of course 30 of you cleared your throats. Okay, I can't do it. But that was for the other practice. That was, remember, for counting, right? Well, here it's like that. When the, okay, just one person, Rosario, at your leisure, just clear your throat. I'm getting there every time. Pretty easy. But that's it. As soon as you hear your mind starting to clear its throat, like, I've got something to say. No, you don't. But you don't say that. You just... Right? Silencio. And you don't even say silencio. You just... You just mean it. So it's just complete negation of thought. Whatever thought comes up, any perturbation, any little <clears throat> uh-uh, just nip it right in the bud before it's a bud, pre-bud. Really nip it right there and just remain in total silence. Now that's method, but bear in mind, you've got to remember how loose you've got to be. Because I know the first time I started doing this, I was first taught this in 1976 and then first started really practicing it quite intensely when I was in Sri Lanka for four years later. And when I first started doing this, this awareness of awareness, and I had all, all, I had all the teachings, and that, but now I'm just in retreat. I remember exactly how I did it. You want to watch, you want to see how I did it? Here's how I did it. I did it really well, with one problem. I wasn't breathing. <laughs> that could be a problem. I was so, you know, I was so there with my sword that, heck, I don't want to be distracted by breathing. Pipe down there, I'm busy. That turns out to be not healthy. Surprise, <laughs> funny thing. So I didn't have anybody telling me, Alan, you might want to breathe, a good idea, settling the respiration in its natural rhythm. I don't think any Tibetan needed to be told that. And I was pretty much, throughout my whole training, pretty much taught as if I were Tibetan. And in some respect, that's kind of importantly not true. So especially when you're doing this practice, it's so important to be monitoring now and again your body and your breathing to see that the flow of the breath is really just silky, smooth, unimpeded, effortless, Whatever it is, it's fine. But don't let it be clenched. Don't let it be in any way constrained by the intensity of your awareness. Okay? 
So for those who are philosophically inclined, I mean, it's been about three or four minutes, something that can be conceptually can really make a lot of sense, can be useful. For people not uh, philosophically inclined, you can just rest, rest your mind in this natural state. In Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist epistemology in particular, there are said to be three types of objects that we can apprehend. Three types. I find this very useful. And it actually pertains very strongly to Madhyamaka teachings and emptiness. But we're just, but I'm not going to go off to emptiness. We're just going to focus on this practice, but bringing in these categories. And so one type of phenomenon is called an affirmative phenomenon. An affirmative phenomenon. And that's like, for example, the color of this sheet of paper. It appears to you, and it's just, there it is. I mean, it's just presenting itself to you. Hello. You know, there it is. And so that's affirmative. It's displaying itself. You, all you have to do is attend. It rises up to meet you, and, and you get it. There it is. It's really simple. So it appears, and you get it. So it's affirmative. It's making a display, right? So that's one type. And then there's, I'm going to use my translation. Uh, there is a complex negation, a complex negation where you're apprehending something, but as you apprehend it, you're aware that there is a presence of something and an absence of something else in the same entity. So it's more nuanced. It's complex. That's why I call it a complex negation. And that is you're aware of the absence of something, but right in that domain or that entity for which you're apprehending an absence, you're also apprehending a presence. Something is presenting itself to you, but something else isn't, and you're recognizing the absence. Okay? So the standard example given is a treeless plane. A treeless plane. Okay? So you look out, you say, well, it certainly is a plane. Oh, it has no trees on it. And so you're aware of the absence of trees, which means you know something. You, you look, are there trees or not? Oh, there are no trees. That's knowing something. So that's knowing an absence of something, but it's not just no trees. It's, that's a plane with no trees. That's a treeless plane. It's a complex negation that there's an aff affirmative aspect to it, but also a negative aspect, the sheer absence of trees. Okay? Or this sheet of paper from, from your side. This is a writing-free. This is a piece of paper devoid of writing on it. Okay? Can you see that? Yeah. It has no writing whatsoever on it. And so you're not only apprehending a piece of paper, but you're also apprehending the absence of any writing on that paper. And here it would be affirmative, affirmative. There's a piece of paper with writing on it. So, and then finally, there's a simple negation. A simple negation. And that is where you're simply aware of the absence of something with no additions, nothing added to it, just the sheer absence. The sheer absence. And in many of the teachings, especially tra traced back to Tsongkhapa, it says when you're seeking out, seeking out, or ex examining, doing an ontological analysis of the nature of phenomena, and you apprehend the sheer absence of anything existing from its own side, by its own nature, nothing really there, inherently, intrinsically existing. When you apprehend that sheer absence, that's all you're apprehending, is the sheer absence, and that sheer absence is emptiness. It's the emptiness of inherent nature. Right? But you don't add a commentary. You don't add something else onto that. It's just, and, no st and, then, just, and then just shut up. You, know? you get it, and shut up. Don't add. It's, it's not a treeless plane. It's an absence of inherent nature. And shut up. That's it. Just that absence. 
And that's what slips your mind from a conceptual mode into a non-conceptual mode. Because there's no addition, no interpretation, no anything, no frills, no elaboration. So those are the three categories. Now, what does this have to do with this practice? Nature of consciousness. And now let's go right to the substrate, substrate consciousness, that particular dimension. Jordan, what are the three qualities of the substrate consciousness when you're experiencing it directly? It's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. So, Jordan, I'll continue with you. When you're experiencing the substrate consciousness and you're experiencing that blissfulness, that bliss arising, is that affirmative, negative? What is it? Thank you. Sounds affirmative. That's affirmative. You betcha. This is bliss. I got it. It feels good. Okay? The luminosity, the sheer brilliance, the brightness, the acuity, of the substrate consciousness. Is it an affirmative, complex, simple negation? What would you say? Absolutely fundamentally affirmative, it sounds like. You're absolutely affirmatively right, yeah. And now, of course, here the words just give it away. The non-conceptuality. Negative. That's just a simple negative. I mean, it's no concepts. But now when we consider that substrate consciousness has these three salient qualities, and you may experience all of them simultaneously, then I'll just go ahead and fill in the blanks. It's a treeless plane. You are experiencing that which is presenting itself, that is the qualities of bliss and luminosity. They are in your face. They're, you're getting them. They're manifesting. And, but together with that, this is a con concept-free experience of bliss and luminosity. It's devoid of, empty of thoughts, concepts. And so therefore, that immediate experience of substrate consciousness is a complex negation as you are experiencing the bliss and luminosity directly, because they're manifesting, but you're also knowing the non-conceptuality of that dimension of consciousness when you're simply resting in it. So a complex negation. And now, having said that, now let's look at method. Method. There is a method very much related to that duel between the swordsman and the archer. And that is, his, he's single-pointedly focusing on deflecting any thought as soon as it arises. But as he's poised there in that immediacy of the present moment, he's sustaining a flow of knowing, that's for sure. Otherwise, he blinks, and he's got an arrow in him, right? And so when you are poised right there in the immediacy of the present moment, practicing awareness or shamatha without a sign, you're definitely sustaining a flow of knowing. Otherwise, you're just wandering. And as soon as a thought comes up, you just eliminate it. So what you are now perceiving is an absence of thought until there is a thought. But when there is not a thought, then you're perceiving an absence of thought. Like no arrows flying. It's really quiet in here. But you're not experiencing just an absence. You're also experiencing the presence of being aware. So that can be enough, according to Maitripa, when he's teaching this shamatha without a sign. He just says that. Whatever thought comes up, nip it right there. And that's it. Now, of course, if you just kind of go, uh, just spacing out, then you've gone into dullness, 
which means there's going to be background murmur all over the place of quiet, subliminal, blah, 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 which case you're not doing the practice. So this is, high, this is like razor sharp. This is scalpel sharp, really sharp. But it's got to be relaxed, otherwise you will get your knickers in a twist. Right? You get stressed out is what you happen. But the method itself suggests, and then this incredibly simple method, and it's taught in multiple traditions, is just be there in immediate present moment. Any thought comes up, release it. And then in that absence of thought, since you're single-pointedly focused right there, not in any of the five physical senses, but right there in the domain of the mind, then as you are resting there empty of thought, it dawns on you that awareness is happening, and you can go right into awareness of awareness. But the method is one of elimination. Elimination of just resting in non-consensuality, but with knowing. With knowing. Okay? Quite, I think quite, quite interesting. Oh, yeah. So we have some time left. Uh, let's go on the left hemisphere where Ama already is. Anything coming from the left side? Observations, insights? Direct realization of substrate consciousness? Sure, go ahead, Miles. Uh, this one's pretty technical, and it's about observing uh, the sensations of the breath at my abdomen. And I find sometimes when they get very um, fine, it's like uh, being able to observe the rise and fall becomes virtually impossible, and I find myself instead focusing on some sort of um, energetic sensation, mm -hmm. maybe a little heat or, or whatever. Is this problematic, or if I can maintain a, a focus there, is that still doing the practice? If you are, I mean, at number one, it's very easy just to attend to the sensations in your belly, because there are always sensations there. Gurgle, gurgle, whatever it is. Be something happening there. Um, but when your breath does become very subtle, as you indicated, if you're still attending to specifically that bandwidth of sensations that are the sensations of the expansion and retraction of the, of the abdomen as you're breathing in and out, then that's good enough. But you, do, but you, do, you are focusing on that oscillation and not just on the background radiation of sensations in your belly. It's the same thing if you're focusing on the apertures of the nostrils. If you attend close enough, you can see there's always a flow of sensation there. And it doesn't get subtler. It's just background radiation. It's, just all, it's the, you know, the nerve endings, and they're being stimulated by little air currents or whatever, or just by themselves, whatever. And so if you're just focusing there, then your attention will not get subtler and subtler and subtler because you've got a certain whetstone for the sharpening of your, of your mindfulness, and it's not getting any finer. So then you're just there. You're stable and have a modicum of clarity, but it won't get any better because you're not giving any more challenges. Like you just stalled in eighth grade and now no more advanced mathematics. Well, then you're not going to get any better at mathematics if you just keep on doing eighth grade all over and over again. And so this is why you want to, do want to be attending to those sensations of the breath. And as they get subtler and subtler and subtler, then you're getting a finer and finer whetstone on which to sharpen your attention and thereby increase vividness. Okay? So when it gets that subtle, it, that's a good time to come up to the apertures of the nostrils, unless, of course, they're still mounting pressure or tension in the head, in which case you don't do it. Okay? 
Clear? Okay, good. Anybody on the right? Go ahead, sure. Maria. Hello. Um, I have received a lot of visitors during this retreat. Um, emotions. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. Emotions knocking on my door. And I, I'm trying to practice uh, loving kindness towards myself. And I would like to improve the ability to um, let go of resentment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find that um, most of my, all these emotions, all this uh, burden I carry with me has to do with resentment. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can help me with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think I have forgiven and later I realize I haven't because something happens again and then I feel double mm -hmm. the size as sure. I hadn't really. Sure. And it's kind of automatically comes like, oh, but you did that mm -hmm. already or something like this. So, so I, I feel my heart is full of resentments and all sorts and all sizes. <laughs> Yeah, sure. And I, I would like to be free. Yeah. And I wonder if Buddha had taught something about this? He certainly did. He certainly did. And um, you express it so eloquently. And I, I can assure you that many, many, many people here in this room and I don't know how many people living on the podcast, you have a lot of company. You have a lot of company. And so, in fact, there are a lot of teachings on this. I will respond. But I'll respond, first of all, with just a little bit of uh, just a reference. Uh, it's this classic text that I've referred to a number of times, Buddha Gosa, The Path of Purification. And at your leisure, happily now, I just discovered this within the last few months, it's, uh, you can download it from the internet. And it's a very good translation by an excellent translator. It's about, I don't know, 800 pages long. Uh, and so I'm, I don't mean to drown you in some great big scholarly tome. But it's, it is really probably the greatest classic in the whole Theravada tradition. And why I point to it is it's very easy to find where is this discussion on metta or loving kindness. Just look in the table of contents, go right there, so you don't have to get lost in the forest of this very, very large and complicated text. And when he's dealing step by step, it's a really brilliant presentation, and it's very practical, of this step by step cultivation of metta, of loving kindness, starting with oneself then attending to the dearest loved ones in one's life, and then the friends, and more casual friends, and more indifferent, and then finally getting to those people for whom we feel resentment. And it could be personal, it's something they've done to us, or it just could be something more generic, that just, you know, they've done bad things to other people, and so forth. He has really a very brilliant and very practical whole set of remedies, of responses that one can bring to that literally to break down the barriers of loving-kindness so that the, the flow, kind of like this wave of loving-kindness can extend not only to friends and loved ones and not only actually out to neutral people, but actually extend out and embrace those people for whom we used to feel resentment. So it's just a source, but you can check it out at your leisure. But happily, this book, which you used to only be able to get hard copy, now you just download it, and it's, it's really a wonderful resource great presentation of mindfulness of breathing, and so forth. It's like an encyclopedia, but all set out in a strategic path. So there's just background. 
and then try to say something here and now. It's interesting that the very word forgiveness, I can't say it crop up, crops up never, but I am pretty fluent in Tibetan, and there isn't any verb to forgive. And yet, we have people like the Dalai Lama and so many other lamas speaking to his own people, the Tibetan people, and saying, you know, in terms of the Chinese invasion, the People Liberation Army, the, the Red Guard, and so forth, the people who just created so in, inconceivable suffering in Tibet, especially during the Cultural Revolution, that for all such beings, the teachings are always on simply, this is simply a maturation of our own karma, but do not hold them ultimately responsible. They were simply acting out of their own mental afflictions. The Red Guard, the PLA, Mao Zedong himself, and his other, other people that he worked with, they all justified, they thought what they were doing was somehow for a greater good that these were barbaric people, the Tibetans, they were backward, they were smelly, they weren't modern, they were superstitious and so forth, and they were under the tyranny of the monastic tradition, and they were serfs, and they were, I think there was a lot of idealism. Sorry, I'm going on too much. But clearly in their minds, they didn't think, let's go to Tibet and kill a whole bunch of people, because we're really hateful, malevolent people. Let's just go off and be hateful and malevolent. I don't think that was there. Did they do a lot of hateful and malevolent things? Yes, they did. But the idea there, that people, especially, especially by those calling the policies, was we are there to do something that finally will be good, and there'll have to be pain in the process, but nevertheless, it will be for a greater good. And so, I don't, of course, I don't believe any of that stuff. I don't believe that was for a greater good at all. But the lamas who are teaching their own people, who went this, this inconceivable suffering, they say, you know what, they did what they did. Whoever it was, whether it's the front line, the Red Guards themselves, or whether it's people back in Beijing calling the, calling the policies, they did this out of delusion. They did this because their minds, on occasion, became dominated by hatred. They did because they were greedy for the natural resources of Tibet, the water, the lumber, the minerals, and so forth. They wanted, they were voracious, they wanted, their, they wanted to grab this great big chunk of land and dominate it for themselves. So, but why are they doing this? Because their minds were dominated by mental afflictions. And they didn't choose for that to happen, any more than we choose to get the flu or TB or any other disease. And so, in this regard, and so therefore, recognize they were victims of their own mental afflictions. And out of their own mental afflictions, they brought this terrible suffering upon us, our own people. So that it's very, very personal for them, right? But they don't tend to use the word forgive they do tend to word, use the word, just understand. This is how this took place. Delusion dominated the minds. Out of delusion come craving, hostility, and so forth. Out of this comes violence and torture and genocide. But the real culprits here, they're not even the Chinese Communist Party. It's not Mao Zedong. It's not you know, any of the, the heads of, of state. The real culprits, the real villains here, are the mental afflictions. Delusion, craving, and hostility. Those are the real villains. So don't direct your hatred, your hostility, and so forth to the people any more than if you see a puppet doing bad things, that you get angry at the puppet when all you have to do is look at the strings and say, okay, who's the puppeteer? The puppeteer are the three mental afflictions, the three, the three toxins of the mind. That's the puppeteer. So don't direct your anger to the puppet. They give the analogy also, if somebody beats you with a club, somebody comes and just strikes you with a club and it really hurts, what, who, who would be so foolish as to get angry at the club? 
That's crazy, right? Who gets angry at the club? No, you say, who wielded the club? Get angry at that person. Yeah, and who wielded the person? Mental afflictions. So it always traces back there. It always traces back to the mental afflictions. Nobody is intrinsically, by nature, delusional, hateful, greedy. Not by nature, not in their core. Nobody has a greedy Buddha nature. Nobody has a hateful, pristine awareness, rikpa. It doesn't go that deep. But these are obscurations that come and they go. I'm sure even Hitler must have been really kind to children and the dogs and to his, to his girlfriend and so forth. He, he can't be hateful all the time. On occasion, he must have been really nice. Some people really loved him and actually knew him, you know. Von Braun, what was her first name? Von Braun. Uh, Eva, Eva, of course. Eva must have seen some good qualities in him. You know, she didn't have to hang out with him, I don't think. And so there it is. I mean, I'm choosing one of the arch-villains of history. But whoever it is, the mind is not always the same. They come and they go. And so are we going to forgive Hitler? I don't really want to forgive him. No, but he was a terribly diseased person who brought incredible suffering. But then it can be more personal. There are people who have been subject to abuse themselves personally by somebody. That happens. Verbal abuse, sexual abuse, people who are exploited, people who are cheated, betrayed, which is very hard to bear. When you really have trusted someone, they betray your trust. That's very hard, very hard. But why? So let's just take that example. Why did they betray you? you know, if somebody's betrayed you, why did they do that? Because they're intrinsically evil? No. Because their minds became overcome by delusion, by greed, whatever the mental affliction. And that was the puppeteer. And then they, like little robots, they act out of it. Are they responsible? Yeah, they are. Nevertheless, they didn't ask to be deluded. They didn't ask to be greedy. They didn't choose. It just happened to them. So Buddha Gosa responds in different ways. But I think the wisest, because I think you're drawn to wisdom, as I am too, there are multiple ways to come in. But this is the wisdom route. And that is check, probe deeply until you see there is no autonomous person there, no inherently existing ego, a self, a person over there who is at his or her core absolutely responsible for his or her behavior as an autonomous agent. There's no one there. No one there. Not as an autonomous agent. Somebody relatively responsible? Of course we're responsible for our deeds. But we do these awful things on occasion as if we've been caught up in delirium as we really lost our minds. And that's when all the evil comes out. So if a, a doctor in a hospital, this is such an important point, I'm going to linger a little bit. Because this is so, this is, this is relevant for everybody, Maria. It's for all of us. Unless you've, you know, we've completely expunged anger and resentment from our, our hearts and minds. This is really big. But if a doctor, for example, in a hospital, or let's say a mother, let's say a mother, and her child, her, her only child, her five-year-old child, is delirious, really heavy fever, and just delirious, kind of out of the mind, and the child just starts swearing obscenities, the most vulgar obscenities towards the mother. You know, he's learned them from television or whatever, but, and I won't give any, but just you can imagine just, uh, just dumping like excrement coming from the mouth. But the child is delirious, and it's perfectly obvious, sweat coming out, it's incredible temperature, just out of his mind. And, but the child is saying, mother, you are, and then expletives, obscenities, and so forth. I think it will never come a time that the mother feels, now I forgive you. 
either when the child is delirious or when the, when the temperature is calmed and the child is back again. The child won't say, oh, my child, you know, when you're delirious, well, I forgive you for what you said at that time. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Why would you forgive? Why are you using that word? It doesn't make any sense. Either while the child is delirious or afterwards, it doesn't make any sense because the child's delirious. From a Buddhist perspective, we're all delirious. We're all delirious. I'm one of them. I'm one of the delirium people. And so the Buddhas never forgive me. I don't have to ask him to forgive me. Any more than the, that the child says, Mother, please forgive me for what I said when I was delirious. You don't have to forgive. You just have to understand. And see, it really fundamentally comes from ignorance and delusion. Because these people, I'll just go back briefly to Tibet, they thought they were doing something that at least this would bring them happiness get a million square miles, all this new territory, un, you know, unexploited. People do what they do because they feel fundamentally, this is going to bring me happiness or this is going to protect me from suffering. That's the bottom line. Whatever we do, whether it's, whether it's something magnificent like Jane Goodall's work, her foundation, so many other people doing marvelous work, they're doing this, this is going to be something good for the world. And it brings them satisfaction or whether it's per people perpetrating genocide, ethnic cleansing, they're always thinking, this is something that will bring, bring me happiness. The child abuser, the murderer, the rapist, and so forth, this is something that bring me happiness. It's always that motivation. But then, as Shantideva says, oh, it brings, it just, it really moves my heart. When I think of Shantideva, there's one verse, I think for me it's probably, oh, among the top two or three verses in the whole text, that really gets to me. It's in the patience chapter, the sixth chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. It says, it says while, we, while we seek to be free of suffering, all of us, while we seek to be free of suffering, out of delusion we hasten after its causes. We, we run after that which will actually give rise to suffering. And we want to be free. And then while we wish to find happiness, we destroy, out of delusion, we destroy the very causes of our happiness as if they were our foe. And when we reflect upon that, have I ever done that? Oh, yes, I have. Many, way too many times. Other people around me, have I seen this? anybody else do this? Yeah, I'm not alone. At least I have some company. <laughs> you know, does anybody else do this? And, oh, and when you see that, especially someone you care for, and you see, oh, they so much want to be happy, and this is how they're going about it. Ay, ay, ay. You don't think, I forgive you. You just think, ay, ay, ay. Oh, may that delusion, may the veil of delusion, this will never lead you where you want to go. I know where you want to go. And I can see this will take you in the opposite direction. What are you doing? You're trying to be free of suffering, and then you're just making suffering for yourself. What are you doing? So every single person for whom you ever feel any resentment, they're only deserving of compassion. When you see with the eyes of wisdom, it's the only realistic response. And then compassion for yourself. And I'll end on this note. Again, Shantideva. He's so good. But he synthesized so many teachings. He said, I have nothing original to say. I'm just compiling a bunch of stuff. And he said, I'm doing this for the sake of my own mind. That's how he starts the whole text. I'm doing this for the sake of my own mind. But if you're a little bit like me, then maybe it can help you too. 
and then for the next, the whole text, it's a soliloquy. He's, he's talking to himself and citing one source after another from the Buddhist teachings. And it's all his own kind of, you're entering into the mind of Shantideva as he's engaging in discursive meditation. And you're kind of cruising along with him. Right? Like, like geese. Like you have one goose in the front and the other one just behind. They get, they get caught in a little wind suction, right? So they can fly right together. But, you know, they, they kind of get it easy, easier if they follow the leader. So we're a bunch of like a flock of geese following Shantideva, the head goose. <laughs> and he says, you know, these people have treated me badly. And maybe even intentionally. Some people treat me badly, but they just they didn't know they were treating me badly. But some people did. They really had malevolent intent. They wanted me not to be happy. They tried to block my happiness. They wanted me to suffer. And they did their best. Because they don't like me. Malevolent. That's ill will. That's ill will. And so they give it their best shot. They steal. They abuse. They do something nasty, something mean and hurtful. They do it. And maybe it takes them three minutes. Maybe longer. Maybe they do it repeatedly. But let's say three minutes. And then they're finished. And they're kind of wondering, okay, how did I do? How much suffered did I able to dish up? How much damage was I able to do? And they watch. And there may be some suffering, because we didn't like what they did. Yeah? It hurt. But then we experience resentment afterwards. And then we relive it. Five days later, during those three months, th during those three minutes, he did this just bad thing. So mean, so dishonest, such that was awful. I hated that he did that. And I get to suffer again. And then three days later, I think about it again. I hate that he did that. I hate it. Oh, I stand it. And then another day, and five days later, and ten days later, as the months go by, we remember it with resentment again and again and again. And our enemy can look. If the enemy could clairvoyant, he said, wow, I only hurt you once, and you hurt yourself a hundred times. I only invested once, but you made yourself suffer so much more than I could. Thank you for helping me suffer, make you suffer because that's what I wanted, but you've done almost all the work. And I only had to work for three minutes, but you've created all the compound. By resentment, you've made yourself so unhappy. And that's what I wanted. I wanted you to be unhappy. And you've made my day. You've fulfilled my wishes. So he's saying, why join your enemy in wanting to do yourself harm? When you see that when you're just resting and ruminations, resentful ruminations coming up, you see, you know, there's only really one victim here. I'm the victim. And right now, there's only one victimizer, and that's me. But it's not me that I'm going to feel guilty about it. It's just this, these thoughts coming up. That's not a person. They're just thoughts. But recognizing, ha, huh, I'm sitting here on a beautiful day in a beautiful place with good food and nice bed and good air conditioning. And then I sit in my room, and let's see, gosh, there's nothing else to do. Why don't I just make myself miserable? <laughs> And so out of loving kindness, and now we bring in this skillful means, out of loving kindness, as soon as we see resentful thoughts coming up, we can simply ask ourselves, but why should I make myself unhappy? Other people will make me unhappy. Give them enough time. They'll, tr they'll do their best. <laughs> but I'm not going to join them because I want to be happy. And so when the resentful thoughts come up, no, thank you. I'm not my enemy. I like myself. 
and I want to be happy. And this is not a way to be happy. So for my own sake, no matter what you've done, that's your business, and it's finished. Right now, I don't want to make myself unhappy, so I'm not going to linger there, and I'm going to find something else to do. Or I'll simply watch you rise on the horizon, but I will not enter into cognitive fusion. I'll see resentful thoughts coming up, like smoke on the horizon, or watching some really bad television program. Really, yuck. I say, okay, well, at least it's just on television. At least they're not really in my house. It's just images coming up. And insofar as there's no cognitive fusion, we're not grasping onto, not attending to the reference of the resentful rumination, the thoughts can't hurt us. They can't hurt us. So we bring in wisdom. We're being in loving kindness for ourselves. Buddha Ghost has a lot of other wisdom to share. I just gave you the source. But from my experience, those are two of the most helpful things. Helpful things. And then you see, in both cases, the word forgive doesn't even come up. It doesn't even come up. It's not to say there's a bad idea or I'm judging it, like, oh, don't, don't forgive. I'm not saying that. But when we approach with the eyes of wisdom, the word evaporates. Because there's no target. Exactly who is this agent out there, autonomous, that I now need to forgive? Poof. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Good. Everybody enjoy your dinner. See you a bit later.